just north of my garter, where everything's on order for you. Where it's sweet like a potion, feel the heat, feel the motion, Margarita's hot from head to her shoe. We're heading to the rough and tumble western landscape for some good old-fashioned humor? That's right, it's a music, comedy, sexploitation western. Proof that Hollywood isn't afraid to randomly mix any of the genres together. We're still up all night, and this episode we watched Lust in the Dust. Hello everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Rhonda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Godfrey, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. Welcome to Still Up All Night, the podcast that celebrates the quirky films of USA Up All Night. I'm Travis Yates, joined as always by my co-host, Rob Katie. Rob, how are you? I am well. And yourself? I'm fantastic. You know, this, you know, being that we were probably in high school when we, you know, watched all these films, it's only fair that we take a summer break. So we did that. But now we're (laughs) back watching awesomely bad films for you. So I'm excited, Rob, to jump back in this. You ready? Heck yeah. Man, this week we've got quite a find. 1985's Lust in the Dust. I mean... It's a comedy western with some sophomoric sexploitation hijinks thrown in for good measure. Rob, this is a mix of genres that only comes around so often, though it's certainly not new. You know, Laurel and Hardy even had a slapstick western comedy with 1937's Way Out West. There's a 19... Go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying, but I bet they didn't have singing in there. (laughs) Right? (laughs) There's a 1969 Western parody starring James Garner, Support Your Local Sheriff. And, of course, you've got Blazing Saddles, the gold standard, and, you know, some others that stand out, Three Amigos, Back to the Future 3, City Slickers, and more recently, Shanghai Noon, Ridiculous Six, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and A Million Ways to Die in the West. Uh, thoughts on those kind of mixed blended genres of westerns? Uh, a lot of a lot of hit and miss in there. Uh, I enjoyed some of them, like most recently, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Buster Scruggs. That's a it's a mouthful. Hard to ramble out. Yeah, mouthful. I, I enjoyed that one. Of course, City Slickers is a blast, but uh, <laughs> this one sort of stands out even different. You know, sets itself apart from even all those. Yeah, I think it's difficult to pull off because, you know, nothing about the Western is funny. So you're yeah. right. Your writers <laughs> need to be talented to mine that landscape for the humor. Uh, did you see what I did there, Rob? Landscape. Westerns are known for their <laughs> sweeping landscapes. All right. Anyway, um, yeah, it is it is tricky. Um, but, you know, it every now and again, a real gem comes along. Uh, But before we get to this gem, it's time for our Pop Culture Rewind, and we're taking the pulse of society in March of 1985. Now, technically, Rob, this film debuted in November of 1984 at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, but its theatrical release was March 1st, 1985, so that is Ah. the date that we're sticking with. 
Uh, Rob, our top movies at the box office are by far the strongest collection since we've started the Pop Culture Rewind. Really? Take, take a guess at the top movie at the time, and I'll give you a hint. It's Gosh. a it's a buddy cop flick. Uh, uh, Eddie Murphy? Yep. And that, why is the name of the movie entirely eluding me right <laughs> because now? Because <laughs> we're because we're in our forties and we're starting to yes. age. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop comes in yeah, at number one. Uh, the Harrison Ford thriller uh, Witness was number two. One of my favorite movies of all time, The Breakfast Club, comes in at number three. Number four is the road trip movie starring John Cusack and Daphne Zaniga, The Sure Thing. And Man. rounding out our top box office five for March of 85, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Your, oh, wow. your favorite genre, genre there. Yeah. So there is something for everyone on this list. I mean, you've got John Hughes films. You've got you know classic Eddie Murphy. Harrison Ford, of course, is in there. So just a, what a list, right? No kidding. And what a way to make you feel old rattling that oh, list off. No kidding. But what a time <laughs> for movies. Uh, movies in the theater at the time included Mask, The Last Dragon, Vision Quest, Amadeus, Desperately Seeking Susan, and Police Academy 2. I mean, can you imagine it, going, yeah. seeing all that on the marquee? Interesting Boy. to see the, all the comedies, yeah. too. And it feels like, you know, that is no longer a thing in theatrical releases. Yeah, you know... Um, Adam Devine just took some heat for this in saying that Marvel yeah, has yeah. ruined comedies. And he was, of course, taken out of context by, you know, just that headline popping up on social media and everybody, you know, losing their mind. And what he what he was saying is that with, you know, the success of the Marvel movies and kind of the re- renaissance or the return, I should say, of, of blockbusters, uh, studios are, are afraid to, you know, take a chance on comedies now the way they weren't back in the eighties and nineties, maybe. Yeah. But, but even then I feel like, you know, cause like Will Ferrell's got this new one coming out with the voicing dogs and it just doesn't look good. I, I don't know what's happened to, to comedy. It, it, we're in a strange place. And I, you know, I, I don't, I don't buy into the whole woke and you can't say things anymore and you can't be funny and all that. But I just, feel like it's a lost art or you know yeah stuff that comes out is just sort of pandering to the lowest common denominator as opposed to truly being funny yeah when you remember that john hughes wrote ferris bueller's day off in the span of a weekend in a you know, cigarette and coffee fueled uh, writing <laughs> spree you know it, it really comes down to the writers right good writing writing good mm-hmm. good movies and good characters and so pay the writers, Hollywood studios. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about since we've last been on the air, the writer strike. Um, I actually over summer break took a trip to Hollywood, and um, and saw the writer strike firsthand for a couple of our studio uh, tours, and and we honked as loud as we could supporting the writers, and uh, here it is still going on months later. So no kidding. So you know that's at the crux of any good movie. That's it comes down to your writers. So. Um, all right, moving on. Songs topping the charts of March of 85. One of the best love ballads of all time topping the charts, and it features the artist Andrew Ridgely. Any guesses, Rob? Love song? Yeah, do you remember who Andrew Ridgely was? He was the. Yeah, Wham! Yeah, that's right. So 
But I can't think of love song. Careless Whisper, Rob. <laughs> by <geez>. Wham. <laughs> um, uh, My sister loved that song. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great one. So it was number one in Andrew Ridgely. Uh, the forgotten member of Wham, the 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 Marty Jannetty to your Shawn Michaels, however you want to. <laughs> yeah, didn't uh, Netflix just do a, a Wham documentary? Uh, you know, I feel like they did because I I remember thinking, you know, that's one of my top trivia go tos when I'm at a a gathering. Is hey, can you tell me who Andrew Ridgely is? Now this documentary comes out, and I'm like, oh great, there goes my <laughs> well, there goes my it's talking. Probably point. why it's uh, fresh in my mind because I think I saw something about the documentary. <laughs> yeah. And a great top five here as well, just like we had with our movies. Ario Speedwagon's I Can't Fight This Feeling. Mm-hmm. David Lee Roth's California Girls after he had just split from Van Halen yep. to try to go solo. Glenn Fry's The Heat Is On. So oh, also man. you got a guy splitting from his band there. And then yeah. Billy Ocean's Loverboy rounds out the top five in that order. So pretty strong time for music as well. Just 85, I think, might be the last great year we've ever had in society, would you say? (laughs) I don't know. I I feel like there were some strong years in the 90s. All right, if you say so. You had the 85 (laughs) Bears here. I mean, it just all went downhill from there. Top Bears. Yeah, Top Bears. All right, um, let's see. Uh, Sitting atop the TV ratings, as it did for the majority of its run, The Cosby Show was number one the week of March 1st, 1985, followed by Dynasty, Family Ties, the Grammy Awards show, so kind of a special event there. And then Simon and Simon. Rob, uh, fans of any of these shows in our top five? I think as a family, we watch just about all of them. Mm-hmm. Well, you're probably Simon and Simon less than the others, but... I was a little too young at the time for Dynasty, but certainly in on all the others. I don't, I'm pretty sure I didn't watch the Grammys that year as well. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, I did uh, but all the others, yeah, absolutely. A few other fun pop culture notes. Uh, the TV show Moonlighting debuted on March 3rd on ABC. Moonlighting, of course, would launch the career of Bruce Willis, put him into the stratosphere. Yeah. And, you know, though I wasn't quite old enough to fully grasp the show's narrative, my mom was a huge fan. So uh, shout out to, to Maury. Uh, the same, my mom, the saint, and uh, thankfully, I watched most of the series and remember enjoying it, even as a kid. Did you watch mm-hmm. Moonlighting, Rob? Absolutely, yeah. My sister was a giant fan of it, being you know a couple of years older than myself, and mm-hmm. I sort of just tagged along. But <clears throat> yeah, I enjoyed it. On March sixth, Rob Mike Tyson would have his first professional fight, knocking out Hector Mercedes. It was the first of many KOs, of course, for Iron Mike. Yeah. Um, on March 18th, Capital Cities Communications acquired ABC for $3.5 billion. It was the first time that a network was sold since the advent of television in the 1940s. Capital Cities Communications was owned by Tom Murphy and Dan Burke. Rob, these guys were the Vince McMahon of television affiliates. If you're familiar with how McMahon put all of the wrestling territories out of business in the wrestling world. They started with the ownership, these these two, uh, Murphy and Burke, they started with the ownership of just one station in Albany, New York, with the business model of investing in programming while cutting costs. So that helped them amass seven TV stations and 12 radio stations, but they were still just fourth the size of ABC, Nevertheless, Capital Cities Communications purchased ABC, who was running 
third place behind NBC and CBS in the network wars, which at the time, kids, there was only three networks. Yeah. Um, for the, like I said, three point five billion dollars. That's uh, crazy to think of. <laughs> you know, eighties money in the billions. Yeah. Um, They became known as Capital Cities ABC Incorporated, and they stuck with their model of cutting costs, eventually overtaking CBS in the ratings by the late 1980s. And perhaps the most important nugget out of all of this is that a plucky young executive who had been slowly rising through the ranks of ABC since 1974 caught the eye of Murphy and Burke after their acquisition of ABC. That executive... Bob Iger, oh. who would, of course, become the head of ABC Entertainment in 1989. Capital Cities ABC Inc. would merge with Walt Disney in 1995, and then Iger would go on to become CEO of Disney. So, pretty Taking big... a lot of heat in social media at the moment yes. as well for his comments. Yeah, but a big day in pop culture there on March 18, 1985 and the implications that it would have a kind of trickle-down effect for a lot of careers. How about Rhonda Shear? In 1985, she was pretty busy. It was a busy year for our favorite Up All Night host. She appeared in two episodes of the wildly popular TV show Dallas, mm. uh, as well as an wow. episode of Cheers. So God, I don't think I remember yeah, that. Yeah, popping up all over the place. She parlayed those TV guest appearances into a couple of movie roles. Doing Time, a comedy that featured Muhammad Ali. Interesting. And then she had a starring role in the comedy Basic Training. Rob, do you remember Basic Training? I vaguely remember that. I know I've seen it. I'd, I'd probably have to go uh, refresh my memory with a trailer or something like that. But yeah, I know I've seen it. Yeah, I'm sure you saw it on Friday or Saturday night in your teen years because it aired on USA Up All Night. So we'll, yeah. we'll have to add that to the queue for sure. And uh, Gilbert Gottfried was ramping up his Hollywood career as well. The prior year, he starred in a dramedy called The House of God. And in 1985, he was cast in Bad Medicine, the medical school comedy that starred Steve Gutenberg and Alan Arkin. I mean, what? Yeah, I don't think I, I'm familiar with that movie either. Bad Medicine. And I'm not sure, I haven't checked the archives, if that aired on USA Up All Night, but we'll have to check into that. I want to see that regardless. And uh, RIP to Alan Arkin, who we just lost recently. So that yeah. was a sad one. But uh, So Bad Medicine... Uh, doing our basic training a couple to to put on the list here for future views yeah i just looked uh and the image of of bad medicine looks familiar i'm not sure i've seen it uh and i've definitely seen basic training it doesn't appear either one is easily available for viewing yeah um curtis armstrong is in that as well so godfrey i mean it's got to be gold so um a lot happening in 1985 pop culture, Rob. Any other memories of 85? Uh, nothing that jumps out at me. Yeah. It was Trump a while ago. Horror <laughs> movies. That, yeah. Yeah. Other, like, you know, other than the Friday the 13th. Now, was the new beginning... Uh, Corey Feldman was in the one prior to that. Isn't that correct? Is that the one where he, at the end of the movie, pulls the hockey mask out in the hospital room in the drawer? <sighs> God, they're... They all run together. Or maybe that point. maybe that's when he maybe that's the one where he did that because it's a new beginning and then they kind of passed on the the legacy of Jason from person to person. Oh yeah. 
I, again, I'm not the the biggest fan of the yeah. Jason flicks, and I've yeah, I know I've seen the bulk of them, but yeah, they definitely run together. Okay, Rob. Well, before we get to the movie Lust in the Dust, let's take a moment to hear from this episode's sponsor. Burger King presents a musical message to her. Come on now, Herbert, don't be shy. You're gonna love plain barley when you give it a try. It ain't number one, it's what's happening. Cause what plain barley does is lock the flavor in. So wherever you hide and go, show your face and take a plain brown burger. A plain brown burger. You're gonna love, you're gonna love it. All right, it's getting a little dusty in the studio, Rob, because we're <laughs> heading to the desert for Lust in the Dust, and it's fitting that we finally have a Western on the podcast because Westerns were sort of the original B-movie. During the silent era and the early classical Hollywood era, Westerns were B-movie schlock. Many people don't realize that John Wayne, the most recognizable Western star this side of Clint Eastwood, got his start in low-budget Westerns. I don't know if you are how familiar you are with, with early John Wayne. I mean, you know, familiar, but not, you know, had no idea they were, you know, low-budget B-flicks. Yeah, he was ready to give up his Hollywood career, and it wasn't until John Ford's Stage Coast in 1939 that really launched Wayne into superstardom and brought the Western into the forefront as a legit profitable genre. Elevating the genre. Yeah. I mean, the next two decades would be the heyday of the Western. The American New Wave movement, movement which brought new filmmakers with gritty, realistic stories um, you know, the age of the profitable Western during that time was killed off for quite a while. And, uh, you know, it returned to its low budget roots in the form of spaghetti Westerns that were filmed yeah. in Europe, primarily in Italy on smaller budgets, hence the spaghetti Western. Mm -hmm. um, but in 1946, during the golden age of Westerns, a Western called Duel in the Sun was made. And it was so graphic with sexual content that it couldn't pass the Hays Code, essentially the MPAA ratings of its time. And the movie was nicknamed Lust in the Dust. So the movie was eventually edited heavily before its release. And now we know, you know the origins of what we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so in 1985, long after the Western's best days, Fox Run Productions and New World Pictures, our good friends here at uh, mm -hmm. up, Still Up All Night, decided to make a sexploitation comedy based on the Duel in the Sun's nickname. So a lot of history That's to wrap great up. Little, yeah, history you, you dug up for that. Just, just to get us to this point. Um, you know, we had to go through all that just to get us to this infamous <laughs> 1985 movie. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Philip John Taylor, who was primarily a TV writer, including 16 episodes of Mork and Mindy. Mm. So, got, got, That's one of our family favorites growing up. Yeah. So got Nanu Nanu. Got some, got yeah. some chops there, Philip John Taylor. <laughs> Lust in the Dust was his first and only of two feature film credits. So Interesting. Short-lived there. Uh, yeah feature movie career for from his writing uh, well, it, it could be uh based on the box office for this flick <laughs> yeah that might <laughs> do it. Been an indication yeah 
It was directed by Paul Bartel, who has a really fascinating bio. Uh, were you familiar at all with Bartel before this movie, Rob? I'm not, you know, I don't quite remember. I know I did some digging into him, but nothing jumps out. Uh, I I know he did some some horror. Yeah, certainly not a uh, household Household name. name. Right, right. Um, Bartel majored in theater arts at UCLA and received a Fulbright scholarship to study film in Rome. Uh, Roger, wow. right? Yeah, it's like okay, this guy's going places, right? Uh, Roger Corman's brother Gene hired Bartel for his first feature, the low-budget 1970 horror film *Private Parts*. Not the Howard Stern's biopic, but uh, mm-hmm. there's your horror uh, background, right? Um, yeah. After working for Roger Corman, he directed the 1975 Corman-produced cult classic *Death Race 2000*. There so, you go. I mean, while not a household name, um, he's got he's, he's got some cult classics in here. He does, yeah. In 1982, Bartel self-funded the dark comedy Eating Raul, mm-hmm. which he starred Just in and directed. Widely known as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the film was well-received by critics with subtextual messaging about consumption heading into the decade of decadence and consumer, consumerism that was the 1980s, of course. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of ahead of the game there in 82, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Um, Bartel would go on to direct a couple more movies, uh, including the 1986 t- Tim Conway comedy, The Long Shot. So there you go, Tim Conway there in the 80s. Go. Yeah. Um, a fun fact, Bartel also has 93 acting credits to his name and often acted in his own movies. And he passed away in 2000 at the young age of 61, so far too soon there. Yeah, I think I was much more familiar with him as an actor, not realizing he directed. Yeah. Um, Word is that John Waters was asked to be the director of Lust in the Dust, but um, because he didn't write it, he turned the movie down. So, Which I I have to say, I, I probably wish he hadn't. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because you hear about, you know, some writers that will write for, uh, with a, you know, a specific actor in mind mm-hmm. for a character. And in this case, it's almost like this movie was written with a certain director in mind in the hopes that that he would do it. Jump on board, yeah. Which it, I think we'd be looking at a different picture altogether. If that, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If that was the case. But, you know, just some really odd kind of, this is such a weird movie just in, in the, the actors. And, I mean, it, it stars Tab Hunter, who was a teen idol in the 1950s and 60s. But he wasn't able to translate that status into A-lister status in Hollywood as an adult. On one of his his one of his first roles was in a John Wayne film, The Sea Chase, and later that year he'd star in the World War II drama Battle Cry. Uh, that was Warner Brothers' most profitable film in 1955. Uh, the wow. the multi talented Hunter could also sing. He had a number one hit for six weeks in 1957, named Young Love. Um, I- did not know that. Uh, yeah, yeah he, he's one. You know, it's like you look at the cast of this film, and left and right, you're like, "Oh, hey, that person, this person, that person," and you're familiar with almost all of them on some level. And I just stared at him, and I was like, "I don't know that I've seen him in anything." <laughs> and yet we have, and you know, we probably heard his stuff on the oldies channel that our parents were playing when we were younger. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things about the Up All Night movies, right? It's that guy and that gal who was in yep. that thing. It's just a haven for those those actors and actresses. So in the early 1960s, uh, Hunter had his own sitcom called The Tab Hunter Show. It only lasted one season, likely because of its time slot opposite The Ed Sullivan Show. So mm. unfortunate for yeah. any, any series that's sitting across the dial from that. He continued with starring and supporting roles through the 1960s, but eventually moved to the south of France, appearing only in Italian films for a while. Uh, He would return to American cinema with future Oscar winner Curtis Hansen's first movie, the Roger Corman-produced B-horror movie Sweet Kill. Now, Rob, you're the resident horror buff. Are you familiar with Sweet Kill? I am not. When did you say that was made? I didn't. Um, uh, I'd have to look it up. And when he came back, I mean, I'm assuming 70s Roger Corman B movie. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, future Oscar winner uh, Curtis Hansen directing his first movie. So there you go. Sweet kill. Yeah, I'm have to looking look at, one the, at the image of it now, and it's from 72. 72. Yeah, there you it's, go. I've, I've not seen that image before. Yeah. If you're not familiar with Curtis Hansen, you should be, and you've probably seen some of his films. He directed The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, L.A. Mm-hmm. Confidential, Nine Mile, and Chasing Mavericks, among many others. So maybe that director who directed that thing. Yeah. <laughs> we can start yeah. a new category for some of those directors that you should know but maybe don't. Um, Hunter would embrace comedy in the 1980s with roles in John Waters' Polyester, Grease 2, and, of course, our film today, Lust in the Dust. Now, Rob, this is pretty cool. In 2005, Hunter released an autobiography. It was Tab Hunter Confidential, The Making of a Movie Star, and it became a New York Times bestseller. So... Wow. Yeah. I guess he did have some traction, yeah. Yeah. Uh, In the book, Hunter came out as gay. And he also discussed a a four-year-long relationship that he had with Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates. Yeah, yeah. So an interesting scoop from his book there. You know, Rob, it had to be incredibly difficult for Hunter to be a studio system era male heartthrob, you Mm -hmm. know, unable to live his life as himself. And, you know, that probably explains his short exile to France in the early 1970s. Yeah, go get out of Hollywood and be his true self for a little while, probably. And uh, interesting, like Tab Hunter, Paul Bartel was gay. Uh, but unlike Hunter, Bartell did not hide it. And you have to wonder yeah. if that led to maybe Bartell's lack of more success in a decade where, you know, the fear and misunderstanding of AIDS mm-hmm. made life mm-hmm. difficult for, for gay men. So some interesting facts there on the, the people involved with this movie. Yeah. Hunt, Tab Hunter passed away in 2018 at the age of 87. So. Yeah. Quite the long life, yeah. yeah, Quite the life for Tab Hunter, and um, you know, because of our ages, Rob, we missed the heyday of his career. Um, But you know, uh, great that that did a lot of TV as well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, we get to celebrate him in this episode, so that's cool. Now, starring opposite Hunter is (laughs) yes. I don't even have to get there, and it's got you cracking up. It's yeah, (laughs) it's divine. Uh, the stage name for Harris Milstead, a drag queen best known for roles in John Waters films. So again, we got another John Waters connection yep. here. It was Waters that gave Milstead the stage name of Divine after the two struck up a friendship 
while living in the same Baltimore neighborhood in the 1960s. Divine would join the group of actors commonly used by Waters, the Dreamlanders. Now, when you're telling the John Waters story, you can't tell it without Divine, who Absolutely. was he was in Waters' second short eight millimeter film, Roman Candles, and in his first sixteen millimeter film, Each Your Makeup. And Divine gained notoriety with the role of Babs, the filthiest person alive in Waters' <laughs> 1970 film, or 1972 film, Pink, Pink Flamingos. Flamingos. Yeah. yeah. Um, the film was distributed by New Line Cinema and gained quite the cult following. You know, does this ring any bells? Was this, uh, this might have been before your time as well. It was for me. Obviously, this was more in retrospect when looking back on, on this time period for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I've seen in the years since seen Pink Flamingos, and yeah, as with most of Water stuff, it's a <laughs> interesting watch and uh, you know, sort of niche audience, but uh, yeah, it's just weird, interesting stuff. Yeah, it, that one in particular can be uh, kind of an uncomfortable watch. <laughs> yes. Uh, Divine would spend much of the 1970s doing theater, but returned to film and joining Tab Hunter for the first time with Waters' 1981 film, Polyester. During this time, Divine would also release disco records and incorporate music (laughs) into his comedy acts. In uh, 1988, Divine would reunite with Waters for a dual role as a female and male in Hairspray. Yeah. So there you go. Divine's performance was widely praised and considered his mainstream breakout role. But three weeks later, Divine died of a heart attack. Mm. And after he died, Just three weeks later, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. After he died, People Magazine named Divine the drag queen of the century. Oh wow! What a yeah. So I had, there. I had fleeting recollections of divine the larger than life Mm -hmm. drag queen that appeared you know throughout the 1980s on talk shows promoting his music and shows but you know i wasn't real familiar with the actors you know much like john waters it was a little bit before my time yeah Uh, did did you have any type of familiarity with? well I, i had seen some of hairspray and i don't remember how and and he cracked me up uh in that yeah. Other than that, I, you know, I sort of vaguely remember some of the music and, um, and I'm not exactly sure how I would have come across that, but, but did. And so, yeah, sort of kicking around in the back of my mind mm-hmm. and, and certainly as soon as I popped this in, you know, knew who he was So yeah. Yeah, from childhood had to have, you know, had some familiarity, yeah. But yeah, I certainly didn't watch any of the Waters films till mm. much later. <laughs> a couple of other casting notes. Longtime character actors, Lainey Kazan and Jeffrey Lewis, are our favorite uh, character <laughs> actor there. Helps round out the cast. Kazan, I may be mispronouncing that, Rob, but uh, she plays a saloon owner, and she has the chops here. She has a Tony, a Golden Globe, and a Primetime Emmy nomination and uh, Jeffrey Lewis, of course, was in our last episode, the very curious Two Corys movie, Last Resort. <laughs> now, I feel if you were a gambler and wanted to play roulette on who will pop up in 80s movies the most, I think Jeffrey Lewis is your guy. <laughs> yeah, he's got to be up there. 
Um, Lewis plays Hard Case Harris here in Lust in the Dust. He's the leader of an outlaw gang. And Rob, we have the Cisco Kid, the Joker, however you remember him. Cesar Romero is in this film. Absolutely. I yeah, I saw him and was like, wait a minute. You know, and had to to look because he I it would, didn't come to me immediately, but I was like, well, how do I know him? Uh-huh. And yeah, it was Joker immediately. Yeah. As soon as I brought his name up, I was like, no crap. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it also, uh, Courtney Gaines, the best mm-hmm. friend in Can't Buy Me Love, uh, still up all night, episode 11, um, uncredited here in his first acting appearance. Yeah, also um, unbelievably creepy in the Children of the Corn. So ah, yes. That's another yes. big one of his, yeah. Um, also, Noah Wiley of ER fame. I missed that. Yeah. Um, so a perfectly eclectic cast here, wouldn't you say? Yeah, oh, completely. You know, and there's others too. You know, Nedra Voles pops up in, in a small, goofy role, and and yeah, just I also really appreciated the names many of, of the many of the characters in the film. But I'm sure we'll we'll touch on that later. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's like you have a lot of actors kind of towards the end of their career and mm-hmm. then you know some just getting started so kind of kind of cool there yeah lust in the dust first appeared on usa up all night on august 18th 1989 and it would make its last appearance on july 27th 1991 and in between that roughly two-year span it would air a total of seven times so whoa yeah a reasonable run on there yeah Lust in the Dust was distributed by the formerly Corman-owned New World Pictures. It was made for roughly $3 million, and it would gross just over 700000 So as you had mentioned, yeah. uh, a, a sizable loss initially for New World Pictures, though they probably made that up over time with VHS sales and rentals, that sort of thing. All right, you Rob, so, yeah. we've got our six shooters holstered and we're ready for the 1980s <laughs> B-Western parody. Let's saddle up and let's do this, shall we? Absolutely. Um, we're going to we're gonna break down the, the plot here that's quite interesting. The film's opening credits, I thought, did a great job of casting or capturing the spirit of classic Westerns. We've got the wide open New Mexico landscape. Um, a little title page with bold, bright red text, you know, and a classic Western jingle playing. Any thoughts on just how this thing kicks off? You wouldn't even know it, that it's a, you know, an 80s parody. It, it almost looks like yeah. a, a, a 1950s Western. Well, and I, I truly appreciated the song that accompanied the opening credits. You know, as, as we've mentioned on many other episodes that, you know, they tend to do songs that are, are you know, basically a description of <laughs> what's in store for you. Yes. <laughs> and they do that here. Yeah. And the narrator too. Uh, it, uh, it almost to me sounded, and I want to see if it, you caught it at all, that it was one of the South Park guys oh putting my. on a voice. That, okay. Yeah. It's what it sounded like to me. <laughs> um, I, yeah. The narrator tells us that there's a saying that those who lust in the dust die in the dust. Uh, which will come back to play at the end of the movie, of course. Uh, the narration occurs while Divine's character, Rosie Velez, rides through the New Mexico desert on her way to Chile Verde to become a singer in a cantina in the town. 
she finds a pond and partially disrobes to bathe while a mysterious <laughs> figure, a clone of Clint Eastwood, uh, yeah, watches on. There. And, uh, of course, that's Tab Hunter as legendary gl- gunslinger Abel Wood. Um, so he doesn't say anything while Rosie postulates why he's there. It's, a, I thought, a hilarious opening scene as Rosie questions what Abel is going to do when mm-hmm. he says... Uh, it's me, isn't it? You're going to have your filthy way with me. You're going to <laughs> ravage me like I've never been ravaged before. And I mean, this goes on for almost 30 seconds. And he's largely <laughs> silent the entire time. You know, the strong, silent type. Yeah. You know, as you said, very much mimicking Eastwood. Yeah. Um, yeah, just so funny. You know, she's just kind of playing this damsel in distress while, you know, hoping that he comes down and <laughs> <laughs> takes advantage. Yeah, yeah. So Rosie follows Abel after he takes off, and we get a flashback to her run in the day before uh, with Hardcase's gang. So Hardcase uh, Williams being Jeffrey Lewis, uh, as we mentioned earlier. And Hardcase tells Rosie. Um, that his group of men are horny and they're going to have their way with her. It's an uncomfortable scene as many of these moments from the eighties are in these movies. Um, we talked about that before in quite a few of these films, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously we don't see a sexual assault and afterwards they make light of it with Rosie saying, uh, terrible. They had me my way with their way with me for hours before asking, would anybody like to try again? implying that she enjoyed it so just eh. (laughs) (laughs) a little bit a little bit cringy but i i think the the sort of tone of it is sort of lightens that some i guess i don't know how to properly phrase that and i do have to to give credit to hard cases gang being uh racially diverse yeah there you go (laughs) so they make up for their off color humor there. Yeah, they've another. got a you know an Asian member, a guy who who struck me as a sort of a, a Ron Jeremy lookalike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they had a, a little person in the gang yeah. and a black cowboy as well. Yeah. So Rosie and Abel make it to Chile Verde, where they found the town basically abandoned. Um, the townspeople thought that Abel was Hardcase Williams, and they all ran to hide. And when they return, it's revealed that there's gold hidden somewhere in Chile Verde, uh, something that Hardcase referenced earlier. Um, so we have our MacGuffin here, you know, the hidden, yes. the hidden gold, apropos for a Western. Um, one of the gags is that people keep accidentally mentioning the gold to Rosie and Abel. Um, when you know it's like don't you know don't 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 share that with you know with an outsider but then they keep doing <laughs> but then they do it over and over again. yeah um so the gathering spot in the town is a saloon and brothel owned by um margarita who's played by laney kazan um local gunslinger bernardo played by longtime character actor henry silva is after Margarita's heart and feels threatened by Abel, so he convinces the townspeople that Abel is after their gold. Trouble, yeah. And to lynch him. Um, but Marguerite saves him just before he's hung. Again, kind of an uncomfortable scene. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and, and this is like sort of a, a, a mini trope where you go to, to perform some sort of lynching or hanging and someone whips out a gun and, and you know, it's like a sniper basically right. and is able to, to shoot the rope with a six shooter. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
Um, so Abel's horse rides off, but uh, he returns to the saloon and kills Bernardo. Uh, I was sad to see Bernardo killed. I mean, Silva yeah. was ca- playing that He's character great. to the hilt. Um, you know, this is kind of a weird parody because it's just barely a parody. It seems to kind of drift <sighs> between a comedy and a and parody. I mean, very very much so. I thought that was probably sort of the biggest flaw of the film in that it starts hard on the comedy and then kind of backs way off and really gets into the plot of we've got to find this gold Mm -hmm. and and much of the comedy just leaves the movie. Yeah. So this is when Margarita busts out into a song professing her lust for Abel after he kills Bernardo to which Abel responds, you people have a weird sense of humor. Um, Tab Hunter plays the character just completely straight. It's almost like they forgot to tell him that it's a comedy. That at some point you should lighten up. Um, It's something that Roger Ebert actually picked up on. In his review of the film, he wrote, Hunter underplays until he's almost not present in some of the scenes. So... Yeah, an odd choice there for, and you know maybe he was told to play it that way, but it's it's quite odd. Um, Divine, I think, really saves this film. I mean, yeah, absolutely, making up for Hunter's wooden performance. Her monologue mid movie uh, to Margarita is hilarious. Let, mm-hmm. Let's let's have a quick listen to that. <laughs> What about that limerick? I can't. You bitch. Ever since I came here, you've done nothing but treat me like shit. Who the hell do you think you are? Yeah, I was a damn tall girl. But what makes you so high and mighty? You own a whorehouse. A whorehouse! And with only three whores in it, one of them's just a senile old cow. No offense, honey. The other one's so new at it, she doesn't know which end to use. So what does that make you? The only whore in Chili Verde! Oh! <laughs> yeah, I came here for the gold. Because I've been poor all my life. You got it all wrong, honey. You've been cheap all your life. Cheap? This furniture's cheap. Hardcase Williams and his gang show up to Chile Verde and a gunfight ensues in the middle of town. And uh, all that this scene proved that uh, gunfights and comedy don't mix, I think. Uh, (laughs) It it goes on forever. And Hardcase eventually bests Abel in a fist fight, knocking him into a well. And (laughs) Rosie then escapes on a horse and Hardcase follows. It It was a long, drawn out scene. It's revealed at this point that Rosie has a tattoo on her rear end that's a clue to where the gold is. And uh, Hardcase chases her down, but then she outsmarts him with the old hey over there distraction <laughs> and stabs him in the lug with a bobby pin. Um, <laughs> any thoughts on this reveal that of the of the tattoo? Uh, just a I guess for, you know, comedy's sake it was you know, goofy and, but just again, sort of a weird plot contrivance to, and it gets, it, it's further even. Yes. And I'm sure right. we'll get to that. Yeah. So the tattoo is actually half of a map to the gold and it's on her butt. And, uh, you know, the, the reveal is that Margarita has the other half on her butt. So, um, 
April knocks both of them out and puts the two of them on the bed face down to form the full map. The full map, yeah. <laughs> uh, Hardcase finds them and goes in chase of Abel. So Rosie and Margarita find out, and they also go after the gold. So you've got several different people here all in chase after this, this MacGuffin. Uh, we get a final climax where everyone shows up at the gold, and we do a funny parody of a standoff. Um, yeah. At one point, even the priest, which was Cesar Romero's character, he shows up for the gold, and Je- Jeffrey Lewis says, um, let's all move around here, almost breaking the fourth wall, saying we've got to make more room on the set for all these <laughs> characters showing up, which I thought was great. Um, everybody turns on everyone, um, which is kind of a reference to the narrator earlier saying, you know, those who lust in the dust die in the dust. Die in the dust. Uh, and everybody just shoots everybody until only Abel and Rosie are left. And then Rosie turns on Abel and pulls out a little pea shooter yeah. <laughs> uh, to kill him when Big Ed, uh, an old lady uh, from the brothel who Abel was kind to the entire film, she shows She's up. sweet on him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so she shows up and saves him. And then they ride off together, Abel and the, and the old lady. Um they ride off, leaving Rosie pleading for Abel to come back. Um, and and that's it. <laughs> so I loved the climax here, a hilarious back and forth between all of the actors. Uh, what would you think about the way this this wrapped up, Rob? I, I, apropos for the, for the film, I, I, it sort of redeemed, because I, as I sort of indicated earlier, I felt there was a significant stretch where they just, forgot about comedy and said all right we're just a straight western we have to we have to wrap our plot up and and this brought a bunch of that comedy back so i i definitely appreciated it yeah it's almost like when the map showed up that's when it really started to to take shape and and the, the narrative actually became cohesive where it was earlier just characters you know wandering around chili verde trying to be funny yeah, launching jokes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I agree. The way it kind of ramped up towards the end, and of course, you know, we get we get Rosie in the beginning, you know, um, you know, hollering out to to Abel about being ravaged, and it, and it ends with with her, you know, pleading for him to come back. So I thought a, a great tie in there uh, that you know we, everybody we end the way we started, right? Yeah. So. Um, because everybody's hungry for the gold. Yes, yeah, so good stuff. Um, all right, so you know what we think of Lust in the Dust now. This is kind of a mixed bag, but uh, what are others saying? Now, Rob, this film actually has a Tomato Critics score, if you can oh, believe really? it. Yeah, and uh, That's surprising. Yeah, and an audience score. So now there are just, <sighs> there are just nine critics review for the movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, Rob, what score from 1 to 100 do you think the tomato meter score is for the critics? 30. Pretty close. 33%. Yeah. Okay. Not bad. How about the general audience score? Um, Do you think it jives with the critics' score? There are more. I'll tell you, Rob, surprisingly, there are more than 1,000 audience reviews. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll say it's higher. And I'll go 56. Well, um, despite, uh, well, I'll just say this. In perhaps the biggest disparity yet, the audience score for our movie, 
79%. Holy moly. So we've got 33% in critic score. 79% gave it a high freshness rating here. I would not have expected that. So let's let's take a look at some of these audience reviews here. So Martin A. gives it four and a half out of five stars and writes, A classic comedy romp. Divine is just wonderful. Tab Hunter is as great as always, and the rest of the cast fills out every moment with sheer joy. However, this is not a John Waters film, but it has all the trademarks of being one. They don't make films or stars like this anymore. Enjoy this high camp comedy outing. So, Martin A., a big fan there. Um, Big time. I don't know about making stars. I guess they don't make stars like this anymore. I mean, you know, (laughs) where's your divine? I mean, I don't... So, yeah, I mean, there's something to that there. Um, Yeah. Robert F. gives it four stars and writes, It's most likely because I was such a Blazing Saddles fan, but this was always one of my favorite movies as a kid. Sure, it's immature and crude, but the jokes are funny. The characters have good chemistry, and Lainey Kazan is hot, and hot was in all capitals. (laughs) Granted, her nude scenes were obviously done with a stand-in, but her attitude alone adds a lot of sexiness to the movie. Now, the fact <laughs> that Robert F. must really watch a lot of Lainey Kazan because to know Absolutely. that the nude scenes were a stand-in, so there you go. Which I don't I don't remember her having a nude scene. I mean, I know... Yeah, I don't remember yeah, We might have scene. seen an edited version of this. I'm not mm. sure. I can't remember the platform in which I watched it. It was streaming, I, I think, on Prime, maybe? I watched on Tubi. Okay, you, you know they might have had an edited for television version that, yeah, that made its possible. way to Tubi, but uh, yeah, but um, it's not all positive, of course. Uh, Rob, an unnamed super reviewer, which I feel like if you're going to be a super reviewer on <laughs> you Rotten Tomatoes, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you can't hide in the shadows. You gotta. So anyway, this unnamed super reviewer gave it just half a star, writing, Oof. "Embarrassingly bad. There's not much else to say." The script stinks, the jokes fall flat, the production values are virtually non-existent, and the acting is excruciatingly painful. It is sad to see that circumstances forced Divine to waste her talents on such rubbish. Judging by the abysmal performances that Divine gave in the few films that she made without John Waters, it seems likely that he was as much her muse as she was his. They really brought out the best in one another. So I'll give this unnamed super reviewer uh, a little bit of guff for saying there's not much else to say and then writing a Robert Ebert-esque <laughs> review <laughs> of the film. Uh, you know, and I, sorry, I'm not on board with that review. I, I, well, I, I didn't love the movie. It's no, nowhere near half a star. Yeah, agreed. I mean, th- this was just vicious. So I don't think it was deserved of that much uh, criticism. Another a- unnamed reviewer gave it two stars right in the middle, writing, Too bland. If you're looking for a John Waters-type envelope pushing, you're looking in the wrong place. This is just a standard Western comedy along the lines of Three Amigos, though not as funny. So, yeah, I think that somehow maybe, you know, with the vine in this and and yeah. the connection to John Waters, I think maybe people's expectations might have been a little high. And obviously, you know, the way it was written, thinking that John Waters might be the one directing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there were some misses there just with those connections and lack of connections, I'd say. Agreed. 
Okay, so, you know, what are we going to say? Well, let's, let's decide if this is worth staying up all night for, and I think this one might be one of our toughest um, decisions here. Rob, you've watched the movie. We've heard the mixed reviews about it. What's your final take on Lust in the Dust? Is it worth staying up all night for? I think I, think I would. I, I'll go yes on this one. Um, I didn't love it, and like I said, you know, the, sort of the the plot gets kind of <laughs> the comedic plot gets lost for a bit, which I think hurt it. But uh, just for there's just too much goofiness in it that I, I that I found to be funny and <clears throat> at times even endearing. And you know, Divine's great with the songs and there's some physical comedy and there's, you know, a couple jokes that they return to that I enjoyed. So I, I think I'd stay up for it. I think that this is one of the rare instances where we're split. Um, it, you know, it almost pains me to say this, but I don't think that it's worth staying oh, up okay. all night for, I think one issue that the film had was trying to play off a film made 40 years earlier. Um, the Western genre wasn't popular in the mid 1980s. Um, I would see, you know, we got a resurgence eventually with movies like Young Guns, Tombstone, and Dances mm-hmm. with Wolves, but that was pre, or this was pre that time. Um, yeah. You know, the comedy didn't just land for me, really. Um, what I would have liked to have seen is a, you know, a, 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 maybe a larger parody of the Western genre specifically and not just mm-hmm. a movie mm-hmm. that was 40 years past. Um, you know, I just didn't think it was all that funny unless divine was the focus of the scene. Um, yeah, it, well, that's, that's a valid point. It did con- contain some of the same tropes of the traditional Western, uh, you know, the silent stranger, the villainous gang of gunslingers, things like that. But it mm-hmm. didn't poke enough fun at the Western genre as a whole, I think. So, you know, this was a John Waters style comedy trapped in a Western shell and it just didn't work for me. So, yeah, and I, th- I think that connects to the <clears throat> sort of the <laughs> plot getting lost where, yeah. you know, the comedy went away to focus on that, you know, solving the the treasure map and the puzzle related, the limerick, you know, that was part of mm-hmm. that, um, that, that they lost that opportunity to continue those sort of parodies of, of that uh western genre that you know they could have plugged in during all of that yeah i mean i will say this too where it does impress me is how it captures the feel of a western i mean for a for a mid-80s kind of just low budget spoof i i thought this movie it did feel like it was made several decades earlier um during the classical hollywood era when westerns were still king so that mm-hmm. was that was really neat. I mean, I'm I'm real big on mise en scène, and and I love the the look and feel of movies, and especially how they, you know, movies to me are the closest thing to a time machine that we have. And yeah. when a, when a film captures a previous time period, I, I, I love it. It's like just close your eyes and just step back in time. We'll leave your eyes open so you can <laughs> watch the movie, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Uh, you know push everything out of your mind and just enjoy stepping back in time for a little bit. So this movie surprisingly did a great job of that. Uh, like I said, from that opening title card, just some, some real, uh, real little specific things that they got right. But the humor just isn't all that funny uh, to me overall. So as, as you mentioned for the, for all the obvious reasons why. So yeah. Any last, uh, any last, uh, 
notes, comments on Lust in the Dust, Rob? Uh, well, similar as it started, it ended with an amazing song. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, you know, again, one of the, you know, it's such a hit or miss. And it got, it got the songs right, it, you know, the narrator at the beginning. And it was just a lot of the moments in between that, that missed yeah, so, yeah but, which, which I'd be curious as to, did something go wrong or, yeah. or was that the plan all along? I think as, as we referenced earlier, just thinking that you're going to have one specific director do this film, yeah, and writing yeah. to, to the strengths of that director and then not having that director do it. So I think that's probably why a lot missed. So Yeah, I mean, maybe... In, in hindsight, they could have had him. Well, okay, you didn't write it, but you want to take a pass at the, <laughs> you know, at the script and, and make some improvements or some changes of your own, and then maybe he would have been on board. And uh, like we said before, it'd be a wildly different movie. I think at that point. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, the sun is setting on this episode. That's going to do it for Lust in the Dust. And hey, as always, you can find us on social media we're on facebook we're on twitter at still up podcast we always appreciate you jumping on there and following us we've had a lot of activity recently on facebook so we love to see that and you know you can do us a big favor by leaving us a review we're a small but mighty little podcast that love doing this for you and love just reminiscing about um these great times past that's right (laughs) so uh give us a follow give us a review if you are so inclined to do and we will see you for the next episode of still up all night you want to hear chicago's hottest music catch all the hits on b96 Nobody plays more music than B96. WBBM FM.